Lekutei Sichais, Chelek Yutes, Parshas Ekev, Sicha Gimel. In the Torah portion of Ekev, Moshe continues his final address to the nation. He mentions God's forgiveness for their failings and the Luchais Shniais, the second tablets that God inscribed and gave after they had repented for the sin of the golden calf. In chapter 10, Perak Yud, Posuk Aleph, verse 1, Moshe says, Ba'es hahi omar Hashem elai. At that time, God said to me, P'salacha shnei luchais avanim karishena, hew for yourself two tablets of stone like the first tablets, va'alei elai el hohora, and come up the mountain to me. The Gemara speaks about the wealth Moshe acquired from the Luches when Hashem said, Psolacha. The intention was that Moshe carve the stone into Luches and take ownership of the leftover stone, so to speak, of the waste. Looking at the Mishnah at the conclusion of Baba Kama, which discusses the laws of a worker who's contracted to do a job, for a homeowner, the Mishnah discusses the leftover materials and whether they belong to the contractor or to the homeowner. And the Mishnah states, using the example of a launderer who launders someone's garments, strands of wool that get pulled out during the laundering of a garment belong to him, to the launderer, as assumedly the customer has no interest in these because they are few. But strands that a carter, a position held mostly by women uh, in the 1800s, a carter or in the proper, the French cardeur, which entailed brushing woolen strands to align and smooth the fibers, those woolen strands, if removed in carding, belong to the customer, as a significant number of strands are often removed or pulled out in the process. It's the amount that determines the law, the value. A greater number of threads would be more valuable to the garment's owner. Further on, the Mishnah brings other examples of whether something belongs to the laborer or to the owner. The Mishnah teaches that which a carpenter removes with an adze, a tool similar to an axe, but that cuts smaller segments, belongs to him, as only thin shavings are removed from the wood with this tool. Those are the leftovers, and they belong to the carpenter. But what he removes with an axe belongs to the customer. And the Mishnah concludes and says, and if he works in the home of the customer, even the thinnest of shavings belong to the customer. The Gemara then explains this saying that the stonecutter has no concern or consequence of thievery if he takes the waste from rock hewn for a customer. The Rebbe Marash, Rabbi Shmuel, the fourth in the Chabad dynasty, in a siyum on Maseches Babakama, writes a short note presenting a question 
on this law regarding the stonecutter as it applies to Hashem's instruction to Moshe, Psalucha, hew for yourself. And the explanation in the Gemara that tells us that Moshe acquired great wealth from the remaining stone, from the leftovers, from the waste. Why was it necessary for God to give Moshe permission, so to speak, in saying psalucha, to take ownership of the stone left over after carving the luchais, if there's no implication, as we just said, the Gemara tells us of thievery for a stonecutter or a stonemason. And this is because rocks belong to no one. And in fact, the one who is more closely, re- the more closely related to the material then to the fellow who contracted him would be the stonecutter in this case. He explains that Moshe was hewing the luchis from precious sapphire versus just plain stone, which is what's discussed in the Mishnah. It would seem that this explanation that the Rebbe Maharash offers, that it's because the leftover rock for the luchis was sapphire stone, and hence God gave Moshe permission to take it with the words of Psalucha, is in fact dependent upon two opinions that we find in the Medrash Tanchuma on this parsha. Rav Levi, Rabbi Yechanan, Oimer Mehechon, Psalon, Echod Oimer Mitachas Kise Hakavid Psalon, Veechod Oimer Mitach Eiholoi. Rav Levi and Rabbi Yechanan each have an opinion regarding where this rock for the second luchis, the second tablets, comes from. One says it was hewn from under the Kisei HaKavid, from beneath the throne of glory. And one says God created a quarry in Moshe's tent, and he quarried two tablets of stone from there. From this stone, Moshe took the remains, the leftovers, the remaining stone, and he became wealthy because this stone was sapphire. According to these two opinions, in the first, the luchis, the tablets, were from above, of a higher domain. According to the second opinion, the quarry was below, of this world. This is in line with the wording of our verse, beginning with the words psalucha shnei luchais avonim karishainim, hew for yourself two tablets like the first, followed by the words va'alei elai hahara, and come up to me onto the mountain. The pattern is the same as when Moshe was first commanded to carve the luchais in Parshas Kisisa. So according to the opinion, that the hewing of the luchis and the stone that remained demand no explanation for why God said psalucha, for why God gives Moshe permission to take the leftover sapphire rock, is because there's a halacha stated in Bavakama that if the contracted work is done in the home of the homeowner, then all materials, in all cases, belong to the homeowner. In other words, even if the stone was just ordinary rock and not sapphire, since the work was being done in the space belonging to the Bala Bias, the owner, in this case God, perhaps there would be a need for the homeowner, 
God to give special permission to take the leftover material. In this note from the Rebbe Maharash, he continues to say that the Rashpats, the famed Chassidim Ashpia, Reb Shmuel B'Tzalel from Shvencian in Vilna and later of Lubavitch, presented the following question. In speaking of heaven, how can we suggest that even a sapphire, even a precious stone, has any intrinsic value? To which the Rebbe Maharash responded, the luchais were of this world. The stone was of this world. Because if it was of higher worlds, there would be no psalis, no leftovers, no waste, which also covers the challenge of the question regarding God's permission. Of course, this is still complicated because not only heaven belongs to God, but God is the earth's landlord too. Mole koha oritz God's glory fills the entire earth. As our sages say, wherever one is, one is in God's treasure. As the Gemara states, Hashem ha'aretz umloya, the world and all in it is God's. So even if the stone is of this world, the luchais were hewn in the care of the landlord and special permission is indeed required even for ordinary rock. So how do we then understand the Rebbe Marash's reasoning? And though, on the other hand, one really cannot say that God, the world's homeowner, will be pedantic about leftover materials because nothing is of significance in this material world that God should fuss over it. And really, there's no difference between precious rock and ordinary rock, as the Rashbats indeed points out. But we said this rock was made in this world, where things are considered and valued, as this world places value on material things. And since, as Maimonides teaches, regarding the laws of things prohibited on the altar, kol dover hokel that the law is that everything used or given for the sake of the Almighty who is good should be of the most attractive and highest quality. And therefore, Torah teaches us in the portion of Vayikra that kol chelev lahashem, all the parts that are of superior quality are brought up to God. In that case, God would be exacting, even over ordinary stone, because it's God's earth's homeowner where something belongs, and when something belongs to you, you're particular about it. So it turns out that it's really just the opposite, that God created nothing random or unnecessary in this world. So God surely is exacting about everything. It would seem that we could suggest that regarding a stonemason, the law regarding materials left over from work done in the homeowner's space is that they remain with a homeowner. Proof for this is where this brysa that tells us that when the Gemara teaches that there is no implication of thievery for stonemasons is placed in the concluding section of the Gemara that discusses whether there's an impact if he does the work at the homeowner's place and not where the Gemara discusses who the leftover material belongs to. 
which implies that there is no stealing considered regarding leftover materials from the work of a stonemason, not because the stonemason only works in his own workspace, but even if he works in the customer space. This crystallizes the words of the Rebbe Marash, who says that what necessitated the permission God gives Moshe with the words psalacha, hew for yourself, implying take the leftovers, is that the stone used was sapphire. And if it were ordinary rock, it would make no difference whether he worked with it in his own space or in the space of the homeowner, in other words, his customer, as there's no concern here of stealing. This reasoning, though, is a bit of a stretch because the conjecture to separate between work done at the premises of the homeowner and work done outside the premises as affecting the stonemason is based on the thinking that why would it be any different for the stonemason to a different laborer? Additionally, the Rebbe Maharash in this note also points out that v'ha'uman the professional has a closer relationship, usage for, and knowledge of rocks than the homeowner does, which seems to imply that there's no implication of thievery with stonecutters, specifically when the work is done off-premises of the homeowner, because it seems that, that if it's an on-the-premises job, on-the-premises of the owner, homeowner, homeowner who hired the stonemason for this job, how does the statement of Ha'uman Karav that the professional is closer to the material than the homeowner play out? This can be explained by first clarifying the difference between the laws as discussed earlier in the Brisa and as they are discussed in the Tesefta. In the Brisa, these are divided and structured in two categories of law. The Brisa teaches, a stonecutter carries no implication for the violation of stealing. And those who prune trees, those who prune vines, those who trim shrubs, those who eat plants, and those who hoe vegetables, the halacha is determined by the inclination of the field owner. If the owner is exacting about the pruning, or the pruned branches, the laborer would transgress the prohibition of stealing if he were to take from the pruned and trimmed branches. If the owner is not particular, though, then the worker can take ownership of the trimmed cuttings. But in the Tesefta, these instances are all incorporated in one law. Again, in the Brisa, we learn a stonecutter carries no implication for violation of stealing. Then the Brisa carries on and says, and those who prune trees, those who prune vines, etc. But in the Tesefta, all is incorporated as one. And we learn stonemasons, vine pruners, weeders, and cedars are prohibited from taking of the remaining materials if the owner is particular, because it would then be stealing. And if he isn't particular, they're permitted to these cuttings and materials, as there is no stealing implied. It's a plukta. There are divergent opinions between the brysa and the tesefta, whether the position of the homeowner 
is exacting or particular or not? If he's not particular and how it impacts the stonemason, in fact, the tour, the Arbaturim, a halachic codification prepared by Yaakov ben Usher of Spain of the 1300s, who despite highlighting the law also regarding the tree pruner and the vegetable hoer mentioned only in the Brisa and not in the Tesefta, men nevertheless determines like the Tesefta that the law regarding the stonemason depends on the way the Balhabayas, the owner, feels. Here's why they differ. According to the Brisa, the explanation not incorporated into Mishnah, there is a difference between stonemasonry and other work, like tree pruners or shrub trimmers, in that the leftover cuttings of field work is more significant than that which remains from stonemasonry. So it really depends on the homeowner. If he's particular, it's stealing to take the remaining shrubs and stuff away. And if not, it's not stealing. Or even if the people in the neighborhood don't fuss over this stuff, it doesn't actually matter then what the homeowner feels. If the people there just generally aren't particular about the leftover cuttings, that becomes the deciding factor. In the event that the homeowner isn't particular, there are two opinions why it's then available for the taking. Either because the fact that he isn't particular about it, the material becomes hefker, it's like it's abandoned, so anyone has access to it, not only the laborer hired for the job, or it's considered like a gift from the homeowner, as it's so insignificant in amount, he allows whomever wants to just come and take. And he doesn't even know who comes, when they come. But as for the stonemason, who has no concern of thievery, the shards of mason stone are so small that their value is lesser than the leftover branches after pruning. No permission is needed for the homeowner because their minimum value inherently means that the shards are just abandoned to whomever. So even if a homeowner gets fussy over these shards, his fussing is not taken into consideration. Not, because, not just because no one in his neighborhood cares, but because the dust that remains just isn't worth fussing over, like the Rebbe Marash points out in his note, because they are, at this point, just ownerless. In other words, when we're talking about prune trees and other field work, and it depends on the homeowner's level, level of particularity, or on the way the folks in his neighborhood think, whether as abandoned cuttings or as some gift of the homeowner, that's about the individual. But the object itself may have some intrinsic worth, but the law that there is no implication of stealing with and around stonemasonry is because what's left after a job is intrinsically not worth anything and thus considered hefker, an abandoned thing. This then is the reason for the disagreement in the Brisa and the Tesefta, which states 
that even regarding stonemasonry, it depends on the homeowner. The overarching difference between the Brisa and the Tesefta really goes back to the explanation that we have for the rules in studying the Mishnah and Talmud. A Tesefta is supplementary to the Mishnah. Therefore, we don't learn it as Tanya that we have learned from the Rabbonim or as Tanu Rabbonon, the Rabbonon taught, because Teseftes were learned concurrent to the Mishnah, transcribed by Rabbi Chia, who wrote upon the direct instruction sitting before Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, who directed Rabbi Chia to include certain teachings in the Mishnah and certain teachings as a Tesefta supplementary to the Mishnah. All these teachings came from Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi and were transcribed by Rabbi Chia. And Brysis, our Mishnayis, studied not before Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi and outside of the yeshiva of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, compiled by Rabbi Chia, by Rav Oshi and others, but outside, like the name these teachings are given, Brysis, from the word Baruchutz, outside, outside Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi's yeshiva, which means that a tesefta was definitely learned in Eretz Yisrael, transcribed by Rabbi Chia, sitting before Rabbi, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi in his yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael. But the brises outside of Rabbi's yeshiva were likely even learned in Bovel, particularly as Rabbi Chia lived in Bovel, and he was of the compilers of the Brysis. So the Brysis have a greater association to Bovel, where Jews in this time historically, says Maimonides in his introduction to Yad HaChazaka, were wandering to. They were wandering to distant places, and Bovel was one such place, becoming a great place of Torah study. Now, taking this into consideration, when we take a look at a verse in the portion of Noyach, in chapter 10, Perik Yud, that relates that the generation in Noyach's time following the flood sought to, quote-unquote, protect themselves from God and his flooding ways by building a tower to the heavens gathered to make bricks. And the verse reads, And they said to one another, Let's make bricks, they said, and then form them in fire. So the bricks became their stones, which Rashi explains saying, These were no, there were no stones in Babylon. That's where they were. It would be called Migdal Bavel, the Tower of Bavel as Bovel is a valley and has no mountains, hence no quarries and no stones. So the Brysa coming out of Bovel, where stones were not used for building, teaches that the shards of stones are essentially ownerless. And if somebody would be particular about shards of stone that may have been brought there, his particularity is of no significance and there is no thought to thievery for a stonemason in the context of one living in Bovel. But Eretz Yisrael, described in our parsha with a beautiful praise 
of a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose mountains you will hew copper. Her rocks were of great significance, great strength, even her shards, as significant as the pruned vineyards, and so whether the leftovers may be taken or not and belong to the homeowner as per his, prefer- his personal preference becomes very significant. Now we can return to a better understanding of the Rebbe Marash's note. Whereas at this time that Moshe was speaking, the nation was still in the desert, where rocks were not commonly found or used, despite the fact that when we read of the Mekoshish Eitzim, the one who desecrated Shabbos by carrying wood, we know that he was stoned by stones, yet the desert wasn't a place where stones or mountains were readily accessible or used. And furthermore, no houses were being built as we wandered and camped and wandered and camped in the desert. The rule is that there is no stealing implicated thus for a stonemason. And regarding the object itself, the shards after a job are considered hefker, abandoned, not only because of Balabayas, the owner isn't particular about this. So why then was Moshe instructed by God, psalacha, given permission, hew the luchais and take the rest? Because this was sapphire stone, valuable and precious, and one cannot make that rule that there is no implication of thievery on something that has no value. The shards of sapphire had great value, and so Hashem had to give Moshe permission to take them. And regarding the earlier explanation that the stones have more significance for the craftsman than for the balabayas, the owner, and the question about God holding all of creation as significant, in fact, the Baal Habayas, the owner, isn't there referring to God. It's rather a reference to the rest of the people who could take something that is Hefker as well. Anyone could take the abandoned leftover material. And it's of no significance, actually, to the homeowner at all. But the Uman, the craftsman, gets to take this Hefker stone, this abandoned stone, as it's very significant to him. He has worked with it, so Moshe gets it. He's the craftsman. Hence the explanation of the Rebbe Maharash that Moshe had to be given permission because it was sapphire stone. There is yet another reason permission was needed and given by God with the words psolucha. The luchais would ultimately rest in the urn in the tabernacle, which belonged, like everything in the Mishkan, to the public, to the nation. Not to God, but to the nation. It was made for the populace and belonged to them. And so Hashem had to give Moshe permission to keep the leftover sapphire stone, though the tabernacle and its vessels belonged to the people. Also, it says in the Gemara in Edorim that Psalicha loinitna teira ela lemeisha v'chulu sheneemar 
Torah was given from Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe shared it with a nation. As it says in Torah, how do we know this? Because it states, write for yourself. Ksav lecha, hew for yourself. Just like the remaining stone belonged to Moshe, so did its writing. Its writing, says the Gemara, actually alludes to the deep analysis, pilpul, of Torah. Because we do learn that the giving of the Torah was for the nation. But the pilpul, the deep, sharp analysis and complexities of Torah, was given to Moshe, who then shared that with the nation. Now, though the sapphire shards would belong to all the populace, and even though it was very valuable, were it to be divided between the entire nation, it would not, when spread out among all that way, be worth even one pruta. You can't place a law on something that isn't of the value of one pruta, a very small denomination of money. It's not relevant to even say that this isn't considered stealing. Once all the shards or the leftovers would be distributed among the entire nation, and they no longer in that way have real monetary value. And yet, this law would still apply because one may not steal from a community. Though there is no real value to the object, stealing is still not allowed. And thus, Moshe required permission, psalacha, to take the remaining shards of stone. The inner and deeper understanding here is that the ownership of the luches, the tablets, indeed were the nations. Yet the leftovers, the shards of the luches, belong to Moshe. Understanding this more deeply is that in giving the second luches, Hashem gave an additional aspect of Torah. This was Pilpul, the deep analysis of Torah which Hashem gave specifically to Moshe. And the Gemara tells us, and this is the deeper understanding of the words that the second luches were made below. In this world where there can be waste and leftovers, not above, where there is nothing left over and no waste, and all is whole and complete. The Torah, at the experience of the first tablets, seen to be the true experience of the giving of the Torah, coming from above, represents absolute oneness. There are no parts, and of course no remnants or waste. But it also never descended to us fully, and instead these tablets were broken and hidden away. But when the tablets descend below, the experience of the second luches, which were given after the sin of the golden calf, and the repentance that followed, granting us full receivership of the luches, we have now a Torah of levels and parts, even the possibility of psalis, leftovers. There is Torah at face value, so to speak, and there is, so to speak, the back-end story and study in Torah. 
in these luchais shniyais, the second set of luchais. Thus the connection between pseilosan shalcha, the leftovers after the luchais are carved, are yours, Moshe's, and ksavan shalcha, that it was written for you, Moshe. The deep dive into Torah that we said, the pilpul, that is ksavan shalcha, the intricacies in pilpul are of course much loftier and incomparably so to the remaining shards, the waste, so to speak. Yet it was through the second luchais that we received the experience of toiling in Torah. As Chassidus explains at length, particularly in the Maimur of the Rebbe Rashab known as Samachvav, the luchais shniyais, the second luchais, brought us the depths of study. Therein, too, is the experience of two opposite features. The need to toil to study Torah is on one hand the result of the darkness and the concealment and the challenges of living in this world, which indeed is like the psalis, the waste compared to the very essence of what Torah is. But on the other hand, this effort and toil brings us to a relationship with Torah that reaches essence, beyond Torah as it was given even in the first Luchais experience. And that's Pilpul, the deep, complex dive into Torah that was given to Moshe, which he shared with us. A Pilpula de Alma, says the Gemara, a Torah level of study in concealment, yet this is the level of Torah study that brings a heightened experience of understanding by honing the mind with pilpul. This is what the what Moshe gave us with the luchais shniyais, sharing his Torah with us.